Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock-flavoured podcast. On this show, we're back to Moorcock's writing, but this time in the form of some of his critical opinion in the shape of wizardry and wild romance. Much like Moorcock's wider work, this collection of reflections has been revised over the years, but my old, well-thumbed copy is the 1987 edition published by Golanx. The blurb on the back states, From Conan the Barbarian to C.S. Lewis, from the mysteries of Udolpho to Mervyn Peake, Britain's most famous living fantasy writer takes an expert and often irreverent look at the world of epic fantasy. As informative about such authors as Edgar Rice Burroughs and H.P. Lovecraft as he is about their more literary counterparts, Moorcock traces the progress of this popular phenomenon with his usual aplomb and authority. Warm in his praise of the original, damning in his criticism of the hackneyed and the cosy, Moorcock escorts us on a fantastic journey to worlds where medieval romance engages with modern pulp fiction, where 19th century gothic rubs shoulders with Celtic saga, to worlds where the forces of history and imagination triumphantly unite. I'm joined on this dive into the world of Mike's opinions by the Grogfather, host of the Grognard Files podcast, Dirk the Dice. Back in the midst of time when we originally had a conflap about what would cover, Dirk, without missing a beat, said wizardry and wild romance. Now, as with most of my collection, it's well over 25 years since I've read it, and, thanks to my old man faculties, seems to me to be a lot longer, which is probably why I regularly refer to it as a 70s book in our conversation. Nevertheless, it's fascinating to go back and reread it now, and I do wonder what the subsequent 34 years of developments and frontrunners in the fantasy genre, who are a lot to Moorcock, would add to Moorcock's critical appraisal of the form. At some point I'll have to seek out a revised edition and see what gives. But for now, sit back, crack a porter, and join Dirk and I as we venture into the mind of Moorcock and his take on wizardry and wild romance. And we are back in Derry and Tom's. Uh, by way of Menganeckers, uh, we've had some Ackroyd's Vortex water to warm ourselves up, uh, but I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Chris Hart, a.k.a. Dirk the Dice, host of The Grognard Files. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Andy. It's Stimbox. It's great. We've been, we've been wanting to do this for years, haven't we? We've been talking about this for years, so it's great to actually do it. Yeah, I think we first talked about it probably after I'd only done about three episodes because, of you know, I, I started listening to the Grognard Files probably two plus years ago, maybe longer than that now, actually. So I was always aware of your podcast. I think because of that, if you look at the gamer fantasy fan Venn diagram, Moorcock's kind of slap in the middle and Moorcock fans are slap in the middle, so it always seemed to make some kind of sense that we should actually have a conversation, so I'm absolutely delighted to have you here, it's brilliant. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Although I do think um, at the moment, I feel I've been on a couple of podcasts talking about Moorcock, mm. and I'm a fan, not an expert, Yeah, and so Same I feel here. a bit... I feel a bit like uh, Simon Calder of Moorcock. You know, when he's having anything about travel on uh, the radio or TV, so you get Simon Calder on. I don't think anybody else goes uh, <laughs> on holiday anyway. They always get in. But I feel the same about, you know, in podcasting at the moment, I'm the Moorcock's equivalent of Simon Calder. Well, you know what? I, I, I am not a Moorcock scholar. I'm just on a reread from yes. back in the day and, and discover, rediscovering a lot of it for the first time. And actually, I might lose some geek credit here, but me and Phil have started reading City of the Beast, a.k.a. Warriors of Mars, on the back of 
doing Danus and the Dark Straits of Regolathium, which is a spectacularly terrible example of sword and planet, we thought, well, maybe we should do a good one. And of course, Moorcock's done some. And I'm halfway through it. I've never read it. Uh, <laughs> I've yeah, got yeah. multiple editions of it on the shelf, and I don't recognise it at all. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a terrible Moorcock fan, and certainly not a Moorcock scholar when I've got shit of his on the shelf and I've still never read it. So we're but, all in the but, same boat. Wasn't that thing, though, that he just had an enthusiasm uh, back in the day for just collecting them because mm. wherever you went any second-hand bookshops or anywhere you would always see Moorcock books and Jack Vance books and that's mm. how I accumulated them I just collected them and, and you're right I, I, there's some I've not read you know mm. I, there are some in my pile that I haven't read yeah the old but, Mayflower and Grantham struck panther editions were kind of ubiquitous in yeah. second-hand bookshops in the 80s and 90s, weren't they? Yeah. I, and I was always on the hunt for something, you know. I was always on the hunt for, I've forgotten what the collection is now, the Savoy one, reminiscences of the Third World War or something Oh, like my, my experiences in the Third World War. Yes. Yeah, and sadly, the Golanks edition of my experiences in the Third World War has got different stories in it. So if you do have the Savoy one, it's well worth keeping hold of. I also really love the Savoy cover of my experiences. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And that that was one of the earliest Moorcock books I bought independently, so that I didn't get off Pops. And it was from a, a weird junk shop that sold all kinds of things like buckets and mops, <laughs> and it might have some tapes or some... Do you remember you used to get those really, really terrible Top of the Pops compilations that were re-recorded by, like, Muzak artists, and they had a foxy lady on the cover? Do you remember those? Yeah, they'd sell, yeah, they'd yeah. sell those. And I went in there one day, and they had the Savoy edition of my experiences in the Third World War with a little notch cut out. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they had a hardback copy of the Hitler Diaries before the Hitler Diaries were found to be fake. <laughs> <laughs> so I got I got the Hitler Diaries <laughs> and my experiences in the Third World War. Yeah, but it's, it's a terrific collection. But it's, it's, it's a shame that the stories are different in the Golanx collection, but I've not taken the time to properly look at it yet. But we'll, we'll probably get to that in around about 2036, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I, I, did, I, I didn't really... Um have many because um, unlike you I didn't inherit a, a book collection yeah at home there weren't many books in our house but at the end of our where, where I lived there was a library it was a branch library a great lever library in Bolton and it's unfortunately a few years ago it got leveled it, it burnt down oh, and so uh, it's it's not there anymore but most of my childhood was spent in that library and that's where I discovered Moorcock um, which we'll probably go on to. But, yeah, I, I, it, it was only when I got into my mid-teens that I started the bug of collecting stuff. Mm. And uh, I, I suppose it's a, a response to not being surrounded by many books. I just became like a, a book collector, and it yeah. was mainly science fiction stuff that I collected. Yeah. I, I, was, I suppose I was fortunate in that I was um, given a steady stream that just became a collection kind of by default, really, because Pops and my uncles were all big readers. And they all used to get second. My uncles would get secondhand books from a market stall called Motherbiz, and it always had a pink stamp on the inside. There were two. There was Crystal Books and Motherbiz, and there was a pink stamp on the inside page of each one that they got. They would read it. They'd pass it around between themselves. They'd end up with pops. And I used to get them bit by bit. But years and years later, my uncle Phil, I was round his place, and he said, "Oh, hang on, I've got something for you." And he came down with two bin liners full. So all of a sudden, I went from having quite a few books to just to having tons of the buggers. Sadly, most of them I had to get rid of when I moved in with Phil in Bradford, and there was it. It, it still haunts me <laughs> because a lot of them will be out of print now. 
Anyway, before we crack on and I ask you about your history with Mocock, I want to pay tribute to the Grognard Files by running a random encounter table. I've got half a dozen stupid beers here. Oh, I'm fantastic. I'm going to roll a D6 and see what I come up with. But while I'm uh, while I'm arranging them all and counting them out, what are you on? Well, I'm ashamed to say this, but I've got it in, so I need to get rid of it. I've got um, a, a punk IPA, but uh, Brewdog. I'm I'm getting rid of them all before they're cancelled. Yeah. <laughs> well, funnily enough, what, on number six on my list is a Northern Monk and Brewdog uh, collaboration. So I'm I'm going to view that as the booby prize. <laughs> and sadly, I'd I'd given Brewdog a pass over the last year or so for two reasons. One is because uh, they did all the the free hand sanitizer campaign for the NHS. So I thought, okay, fair enough. It was probably just a massive publicity thing, but they did it. It's fine. Yeah. And also, um, ordering a case of 48 was about 52 quid. <laughs> and yeah. I've got I've got loose morals. Uh, but now now we're back at the point where, yes, they are about to be cancelled again. So I think uh, I think they need to go yeah, down. It, it'll, it'll get to that stage. It's a bit like uh, people look at me when I'm drinking Brewdog in the same way they look at me when I say that Annie Hall's my favourite ever film. And... <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, I'm going in. Okay, I've rolled a two. One, two. So I have got Vocation Brewery Yeasty Boys. And this is actually care of Tash. She gave me this a couple of weeks ago when I went and see, see her for lunch because uh, she knew my birthday was a couple of weeks down the line. So this is a birthday beer from Tash. And it's a waffle and blueberry breakfast stout. Oh. Um, so I'm kind of cheating by not having this for breakfast. Um, exclusive collaboration brew with our friends at Yeasty Boys. And it is, okay, a gentle 6.9% to kick the evening off. So I'll just very quickly crack this. Um, and and does it have a novelty can? That's the important bit. I should hold it up. Oh, yeah, that's all right. Yeah. See, I'm a sucker for the novelty can. Yeah, it's quite pretty. Yeah. It's waffles in the shape of, I can't really tell what it is, something or other. But <laughs> as long as it tastes all right, that's fine. Because I've got to say, last time Loz and I drank in person, uh, one of them went down the sink. That was Loz's, of course. <laughs> oh, pleasantly, that's actually really good. That makes a nice change. Okay, well, cheers. Cheers. So, before we get on to Mocock, podcasting, mm. you're running one of, if not the most popular certainly British RPG podcast, possibly international podcast, that has broad appeal, not just amongst grognards, or is it gronyards? I don't know. It's a Mocock podcast. We should really talk about pronunciation. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, But also the wider gaming community. So what, what, what kicked you off? What inspired you to do it in the first place? Well, we were planning on writing a memoir of our experience of role-playing in the 1980s. I'd got back together. I mean, I've I known Blythe um, since I was 12. We've always uh, been very close and we've seen each other every month over 40 odd years um, at, at least. And, um, you know, we, we, we talk about stuff and uh, chat about stuff. And we'd read the uh, Mark Barrowcliffe memoir that he did about uh, growing up strange, the elfish gene. Uh, and we thought we could do it. We'll, we'll do that. However, writing's really, really hard, isn't it? It's really hard mm. writing. So we got a bit bored with <laughs> doing it, got a bit fed up because we thought, actually, the fun thing about this is us 
telling the stories. He's us mm. doing the exchange. That's where the, the fun is. And I've always listened to podcasts, even from the very start of them, really. I'm a big fan of radio in all its forms. And so I thought, I'll do it as a, that's what I'll do. We'll do it as a, a kind of audio book or, or that kind of thing. And that's how it started. But again, we realised that the real um, fun in it is the conversation, having a mm. chat. And mm. um, I think that's what people like about it. It's that idea of eavesdropping on a chat that's taking place. And that's what works in yours, isn't it? You know, you get a couple of friends together talking, you can listen along, disagree with them or agree with them or mm. just feel like um, a third party that's uh, a fly in the wall in that room. So that's, what, uh, that's how we started. And then we realised that people were listening to it and it was, it was quite late on. You know, it was after about six months we thought people are listening to it and people started contacting us um, via Twitter and other places. And we arranged a, a meet-up in Manchester, which was the first grog meet. And really, I guess that's where we started. It, by accident, ended up with like a community around it and a group of people who, similar to us, had got back into role-playing mm. after not doing it for years and years, you know, being in a deep freeze, as we call it. Mm. So we managed to catch a tide, I think, of middle-aged people realising that, actually, they used to enjoy doing that. So, mm. I, you know, let's do it again. Let's uh, find it again. And somewhere along the line, we started to intersect with people who never stopped playing. And so we were introduced to those uh, people and they came along to give us expert advice on all the stuff that we'd missed in between. And we started speaking to game designers and um, people from back in the day. I mean, talking about uh, Moorcock, of course, uh, Ken Santandre, who wrote the original uh, mm. Stormbringer, uh, was one of our guests on one of the podcasts. And so that was great. So... As well as being us talking rubbish and talking bobbins about gaming and about our experiences back in the day and reminiscing and about how we play now, it's also turned into a kind of Dead Sea Scrolls of you know, what happened back in the day and some of those people who were part of creating the hobby, relating some of the tales of um, the hobby and um, their role in it and mm. from their perspective. So that's been great. That's been really mm. good. And as an extension of that, we started inviting listeners to participate as well for them to start telling their stories. And so we have a segment that's um, first, last and everything. So people have a chance to talk about the first game they played, the last game they played and the game that means everything to them. So that's been good. And again, this sense of community and uh, that's around it. But in answer to your question, as we get into podcasting, it was by accident. And the design around it, I think, is... I love radio and I love fanzines. So it's a chance to bring together the two things. It's a, I, I see it as like an oral fanzine. There might be bits of it you don't like, but it doesn't matter because in 20 minutes there'll be a bit that you do like. And it's a patchwork quilt of voices. And I suppose the other thing is we try not to take it too seriously. Mm. It's about playing. It's not about uh, having a stamp of authority. It's about making mistakes and about learning uh, from each other and learning from other people so yeah. yeah it's it's an experience for us it, um growing and developing as gamers and as podcasters mm -hmm. as well as a program if you like 
Yeah. Well, speaking as a member of that community that's been, you know, listening to and supporting the Grognad Files for a few years, it's it is a really inclusive, warm, generous setup. That I attended my first Grog meet, and it it was wonderful because I'm wandering through Manchester looking for the location. It was maybe three years ago when it was held in a place that looked like it was kind of a workshop and it was yeah, all rough shed. wooden walls. Yeah. The yeah. shed, yeah. And uh, that that actually took some finding, but just wandering around the street, someone on the other side of the road waved at me, and because I was wearing a, a hoodie with Miskatonic University on the back, it was it was it was plainly obvious who was looking for the same building. There was there were there were either individuals or groups of middle aged men looking around and uh, with with packs or bags or nerdy t shirts, all just kind of gravitating together. It was like there was a strange gravity pulling us all into to this central point. And, you know, I played a couple of games that day and I met Griff for the first time, played Tunnels and Trolls for the first time. And that's one game that had completely passed me by even back in the day. Played RuneQuest Grantha. I'd only ever played RuneQuest just as a kind of generic thing. So it was really fantastic. It was a really warm experience and a, a real feeling of kind of comradeship amongst all these people. And I think that's reflected in the community that you've built right across all platforms via Twitter, and I know you've got your uh, Discord, I haven't quite figured Discord out yet, um, but it's, it's it's a real credit to you that, that this is something that's kind of spun out from something that you kicked off as a, as just a, a way to kick ideas around. It's it's fabulous, and I really take my hat off to you. Oh, well, thank you very much. But it was all completely by accident, and I think it was motivated by a desire to play with other people, because mm. that's what we said. We said, hey, you know... It, it, after six months, when we realised that there were people listening, we thought, hey, we might be able to get to play with some different people because, you know, that was the thing uh, back in the day. We could never find anybody to play with. There was uh, three mm. of us on rotation uh, trying to... And, and reading about these uh, scenarios or these groups with loads of people, you know, 15 people sitting around a table playing D&D in an afternoon. Mm. We used to dream of that kind of thing. We never mm. went to a convention because it seemed like on the other side of the world. So, you know, it's been great um, to make loads of new friends and um, to get to learn other people's experiences and realise that even though we're talking about our personal memoir and our own personal experience, that it is shared, it is a universal thing that happened Mm. in the 80s for a lot of people of our generation. It had a lot of similar experiences. We, we were very similar for the most part in that whenever I gamed, apart from early on when I was at school, but probably from the age of 18, 19, whether I game, whenever I gamed, it was me and Laws were half the group. <laughs> yeah. Maybe two-fifths to half the group. And then we had a variety of different people who kind of came and went. And uh, I should uh, raise a glass to actually to uh, to Magic Paul, and I think we should probably raise a glass to, to Mike Hobbs as well. Paul and Mike. Oh, Paul geez. and Mike, absolutely. Yeah, so... Actually, if if we'd have had the kind of um, technology and capacity to network at our fingertips back in those days, I think it would have blown my mind. But it is really great to be in a position now, because up until probably this time last year, or maybe a little bit later, I'd never even gamed online. Because I always Mm. thought, no, it's an in-person thing, I can't do it online. And now I game every Thursday night with uh, Clarky, a.k.a. Keyha, former of Dissected Worlds. And he invited me to join his group. 
as a result of just being part of this community on a Thursday night, and I've never looked back, and I've played every pretty much every Thursday night since. So, so it's fabulous. And I think in the last eighteen months, with everything that's been going on, being part of a community like this is is a, an absolute well, it's a boon. It's yeah. it's really fantastic, and it's it's. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of other people around there who probably echo this when 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 you can't even go out or do anything or play in person. What what a fantastic community to be part of. Also, with people who are tech savvy, yeah, <laughs> that, that yeah. helps. And you know, I've uh, come to the realization over the last few years that it it is a great hobby. And I know that all of your listeners will be uh, gamers, but there is a unique quality to uh, gaming, role game, role playing games. Um, and Tim Harford, the economist, uh, was a guest on uh, the Grognard Files, and he put it really well. He said that it's a licensed creative activity because mm. it, it, it allows you, it gives you a space to be creative Yeah. Um, because not all of us are going to act on stage, not all of us are going to write a book, not all of us are going to do these create, creative things um, uh, producing handouts uh, creating maps, building worlds It's it, it allows that, it gives a license with that and what's brilliant is it gives you a chance to not consume um uh, creative material it's actually participate in it mm. and find other people like-minded people that you can share it with so it is there is something uh, without being uh, too pretentious about it it is there is something special about it and mm. i think uh, i've realized it more than ever over this uh, pandemic and this period that it has been a way of escaping um, these four walls you know i sit in this room i mean it smells like my teenage bedroom uh, I sit in this. I, I sit in this room, you know, uh, eight hours a day working. Yeah. Um, so for it to transform at night uh, when I'm playing with other people online is uh, it, it does it does make it does make a difference. It's very true that pe- some people who listen to this podcast are gamers. I think though I think there's a large chunk of them are because it seems to be inevitable with with Moorcock that if you're a fan of Moorcock, there's a very good chance that at some point. You've yeah. been involved in, in that, and I, I know a couple of our patrons. Um, whilst they're not gamers now, when I've spoke to them about their history with Mocock, many of them played D and D, for example, back in the yeah. youth, or um, you know, came across deities and demigods, and and that was their avenue into Mocock. What what I seem to find is that there are, there seem to be three chief avenues into Mocock: deities and demigods, Hawkwind, or my uncle gave me a book, or I saw it <laughs> on my uncle's yeah. bookshelf, and and there seem to be the three key ways. That people have have kind of found the way into this, with with a couple of exceptions, like uh, Nathan, for example, uh, aka Coram Metal, the uh, the metal artist on Bandcamp. It absolutely astonished me when I spoke to him that he's half my age, and uh, and he absolutely loved Fortress of the Pearl, which I found a real head scratcher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I'm looking forward to revisiting that because I found that really fucking hard work back at the yeah. time. But you know, there's Mocock is finding his way into the hands of uh, of, of a younger crowd, but. The the great thing about this, and the, again, the great thing about this community, and the great thing about the podcasting and the technology and the freedom to interact with people in a relaxed manner, in this way, even before it became de rigueur for for work, is that it's equipped me to do the kind of things that I've been doing with I don't know musicians in San Francisco, for example, mm. or a, a an electronic bleak electronic experimental musician in in Brooklyn. Actually, no, he's in Queens. I'd get into trouble. 
I'm getting struggles <laughs> in Queens, not Brooklyn. Uh, so it's 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 fantastic, and uh, I really dig it. But we've we're well known for going off on tangents on this podcast, um, <laughs> and we've not quite touched on Moorcock yet. So I'm just going to have a, another sip of this. But what's your history with Moorcock? That's our our standard guest first guest question. So let's go for it. Well, as I said, um, there were there weren't many books in our house. I don't mean to say my parents weren't readers. Um, there were plenty of Agatha Christie, and my dad had the uh, is it the Pam collection of uh, James Bond, the, yeah. the original ones. Yeah, we had those um, lovely books, beautiful books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I used to read those, um, but I had the library on my doorstep, and that was my way in. And even before I was uh, gaming, I used to go into the adult section of. Uh, the library because it was they had a children's section and an adult section and the science fiction stuff that was in the um, children's section was fairly limited. I'd, I'd, I always remember a copy of Trillion, Trillions that I took out a few times and never got very far with it because it was all like hard science fiction stuff, mm. Asimov and, and that kind of, and, and Heinlein. And I used to find all that stuff really boring. Mm. Um, but in the adult section they had uh, the nature of the catastrophe yeah. and I used to take that and it had the uh, pictures in as well and I used to read it I didn't understand anything about it but I was really drawn towards it that and uh, John Cooper Clark because it seemed very far removed from my world mm. um, you know it felt it, it, it felt like all the uh, punk stuff that I saw on the TV and other people were experiencing in a book yeah. um, so um, that, 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 that's what uh, drew me I didn't realise it was Moorcock um, that wrote that. When I was a, a bit older and I started to get into gaming, it was um, my friend Blythe who got the uh, Elric and Melnibone from the library, Central Library, and yep. I got that out and it was fantastic. It was instantly uh, drawn uh, towards it. And, um, yeah, I, I, I loved Elric. And I still, I still do. Um, I still think that there is something about him as as a protagonist that's attractive mm. um and you know some of the imagery and some of the iterations in the graphic novels i've loved um, since so elric was my uh, first inroad into it and then we moved on to quorum and uh Hawkmoon. it was later and we're going to talk about uh, wizardry and wild romance but it was later when i had left school and start, had a bit of money because i worked at the local theater um, and I got so I did a bit of casual work, and I used to spend that money on buying records and books, mm. and um, collecting um, Moorcock books, and that's where I started collecting stuff like Dancers at the End of Time mm. and, and that kind of thing. And just like everywhere I went, I just went trying to find the Moorcock, and I had a list, um, and those lists were never uh, reliable. I, mm. I hand wrote on a piece of A4 paper that I took everywhere from uh, John Clute's uh, encyclopedia because I saw that as the definitive list that yeah. I had to uh, get hold of. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it has to be said that I was I was in it for the mystique initially, then I was in it for the gaming material, yeah. and then I was in it just for the acquisition of building up a collection. Mm. Um, and then... It changed. It changed. I started to take thing him a bit more seriously in my twenties, and uh, started reading him again. When I should have been reading stuff 
for college when I went to college. I got distracted really badly by uh, Michael Moorcock. <laughs> All these books that um, I'd collected, I started reading them and taking them far too seriously and earnestly mm. and uh, drawing together parallels that probably weren't there and mm. um, or probably were there, but they don't really mean much. So, yeah, I, I've always had a love of uh, Moorcock and we're going to talk about Wizardry of Wild Romance, but it, it, and Wild Romance, it, it, it's a book that had a, a, a really big effect on me. We can talk about that. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of us who went through a similar process. I think I've said this before, but Moorcock was my Pokemon. Yes, um, yeah. You know, it, it was like, got to catch them all. Um, and depending on what edition you had, whether it was a Mayflower edition, my list that I always went for was the the um, the bibliography at the beginning, which had the list of, of all, all of his publications. And then when I found out that there were books that sat outside of that, for example, that were published by Savoy, and actually, you, you made a point about the nature of the catastrophe with the uh, the James Carthorne artwork in it. Mm. That Savoy version of um, uh, my experiences in the Third World War has got the uh, Jerry Cornelius strips yes. inside, and I can remember yeah. taking that to school. And it's quite it's quite racy yes, it is. <laughs> in places, it is. and it yeah. felt it felt really naughty having that at school when everybody else was reading the rats and getting into trouble and getting these things confiscated by teachers. I had the uh, my experiences in the Third World War, and I was showing my mates the the saucy pictures of Miss Bruner. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. but yeah, it's it, it's it became a, a, an instant need to collect, and I've still got it now. I'm still doing it now. I'm I'm buying different editions of the same books because it's a different cover, it's a different edition, it's an artist rendition I've never seen before. We were in Markham a couple of weeks ago, and between Markham and a little place up the road with um, another fantastic bookshop. I probably came away from just two days away with another dozen Moorcock books. And the, the great thing about the uh, the old Pier bookshop in Markham is it's just like the ones from 20 years ago yeah. where you've got all the same Mayflower and Grantham and Panther editions just on the shelf. The problem in the old Pier bookshop is it's absolute chaos. There's no order to any of it. <laughs> so you could spend all day in there and not find the treasures, but it's, by God, it's worth going. And having a look and, and 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 having a pitch and seeing what you can find. I was very lucky. In the early nineties, I was working in Manchester, centre of Manchester, and in the basement of the Corn Exchange. There, there was a a, a remainder store, if you like, of all the Savoy stock. Oh, um, fantastic! So uh, you could uh, you could go down there and uh, you find all. So I've got here. I've got actually got here a copy of Mengen Hecker here. Um, which is uh, Lord Horror, it's a comic strip. Nice. Uh, that that I that I got that time. And uh, if people are not aware of Mengen Hecker, Mengen Hecker was a uh, a coffee shop in uh, Manchester. It was uh, on Saint Anne Square and in, in an arcade that went led to King Street. There was nothing particularly special about it. it I think it turned into a Benetton or something, but it <laughs> gave its name to uh, a comic strip by David Britton who was the uh, publisher and a bit of a maverick figure uh, in the publishing scene. And uh, Lord Horror, I suppose uh, you could say even now, it's testing the limits of acceptability and pushing the boundaries of Mm. uh, transgressive uh, literature. Um, You know, you read it now, it's still, it it is shocking stuff. And as you say, quite, quite racy, quite steamy. it, it, of course, it got tried for uh, James Anderton, uh, God's Cop, as mm. uh, Shane Ritchie 
it's Shane Ritchie. Sean Ryder. <laughs> Shane Ritchie. I don't know what Shane Ritchie's opinion is of that. Sean Ryder called him God's cop. Yeah. Um, and, and he had a personal uh, campaign with Greater Manchester Police against David Britton. And it's the la- Lord Horror is the last book under the Obscene Publications Act to be banned. And right. Britton spent some time in jail. And one of his supporters, of course, was Moorcock. Mm-hmm. Moorcock um, um, stood up for him. And I suppose it's relevant to our discussion as we go into Wizardry and Wild Romance of how uh, Moorcock stands by such a transgressive figure who's mm. pushing the boundaries of um, uh, taste and acceptability because he's a figure, obviously, he clearly would admire. Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. They, they all, the, the Savoy Bookshop, um, and uh, it, it closed when the IRA blew it up in 96, right. uh, so yeah. not there anymore. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting looking back at Wizardry and Wild Romance that... You know, you, you hear the stories of how supportive Mocock was of of certain people and certain artists, and how he was a proponent of um, younger talents and artists and the people who he nurtured and brought along, and and the fact that he was um, to some degree had a lot of influence on getting, for example, Philip K. Dick published in the UK in the sixties and things like that. It is going back and reading Wizardry and Wild Romance now, and thinking about some of the things that I've looked at while we were preparing for this is that despite all of that, Moorcock himself has a tendency to be quite reactionary. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> About certain things. Yeah. And we'll look at a couple of those things as we go along. But let's get on to Wizardry and Wild Romance then. This, I, th- I think this was originally, when we first discussed this, I think it, we came quite quickly to either Epic Pooh or <laughs> uh, Wizardry and Wild Romance. And I don't think we ever really considered anything else, did we? So, <laughs> so, So let's get down into it now. I've got to say, I've got the same edition as you, and I understand that it has been revised a little bit for uh, future editions, but I'm quite happy to stick with an older edition because I don't want Mocock to get away with going back, <laughs> changing any of this, uh, like you may do with other things. So, But my first instinct when I started reading it, when, especially when I got into chapter one, which is Origins, was straight away I remembered reading it at the time and thinking, oh shit, this is like reading the Silmarillion. <laughs> it kicks off. And the the whole experience is the whole entire first chapter there's all the references to like sort of the older fundamental cornerstones of what's to come in fantasy and heroic fantasy and and talking about a chivalric romance and you know, arcane, arcane names fly past at a startling pace before we really get to kind of chunky stuff about the things and themes I was more familiar with at the time. But at a stretch, I could probably argue <laughs> that although I love Turin Turinbar or uh, the Baron and Luthien section of the Silmarillion, they're not quite as entertaining or they weren't as entertaining to 15-year-old me as reading Mocock demolishing John Norman's gore novels. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it uh, in I'm, I'm sure we'll go into detail in it, but in general, the, this book appealed to me because it articulated the reasons why I I had trouble with Lord of the Rings. Mm. Um, I couldn't I couldn't accept it somehow. Lord of the Rings, um, and the reason, and I think I, I think you know reading uh, Wizard Wizardry and Wild Romance now, I think I've projected some of my own views 
and put words into Moorcock's mouth. Mm. Um, I've been guilty of doing that over the years because he doesn't really articulate the uh, Marxist interpretation of uh, Lord of the Rings that I usually articulate when mm. I'm arguing against it. What, what he, you know, I, I, I always say that Wizardry and Wild Romance, you know, when people say, as a book, change your life, this book didn't change my life, but it changed my uh, library. Mm. It opened up new avenues of inquiry and gave me a, a reading list so to add to my John Clute list mm. and, and other stuff to go looking for and uh, broadened the uh, horizons a little. Because you know, going back to um, children's literature, and that's where he's, he's looking at, isn't it, in, in, in Epic Pooh? Yeah. Growing up in Bolton, you know, the children's literature, the, the main figures of uh, children's literature were Swallows and Amazons, um, Famous Five, mm. all middle-class kids uh, yep. running around the country. And it didn't mean anything uh, to me. That's why I used to love uh, The Three Investigators, Hitchcock's uh, Three Investigators, because it was set in America, set in yep. a, a scrapyard, and um, you know, no class involved. And when I read Lord of the Rings, all those kind of things that I, I hated about children's literature when I was growing up, were very apparent in uh, Lord of the Rings, mm. um, and it, and and that's what he kind of brings out, isn't it? This kind of rural conservatism, uh, middle class conservatism, is is yeah. steeped into it. And um, as I say, I'm probably guilty of over uh, praising this book because it was the book I read in '87. I thought, yes, this is exactly what I've been saying, mm. and it's confirmed that I was right all along. I had kind of mixed feelings about it at the time um, because, you know, my mum read The Hobbit to us when we were kids and then I went on to read it myself. Um, but at junior school, I think I went straight from Target books, Target Doctor Who books, to uh, reading Sven Assel and Moorcock and stuff like that, thanks to Pops, um, kind of getting a direct tap into to all of that stuff. And, you know, I'm not saying that I was... I was it was, it was a, a reading adult novels because really Sven Assel appeals to people in their teens. Mm. Moorcock appeals not only to adults, but there's, a, there's enough stuff in Moorcock for a teenager to go, this is fucking amazing, and miss out on all the nuance. And you, you kind of maybe pick up the nuance a little bit further down the line. But I think I, I had kind of mixed feelings about it a little bit to some extent because, because my mum was so passionate about Tolkien. I went on to read, I must say, the first time I read, tried to read Lord of the Rings, I just couldn't get on with it at all. But like a lot of these things, the same happened with the Silmarillion. I think I tried three times over 20 years to read the Silmarillion. And, you know, I didn't give a flying fuck what Galandil ate before the battle at Gondolin and how many apricots somebody did. Because the names just came thick and fast and it was it was like reading a history text. But one day I sat down and read it, probably when I wasn't stoned because I'd given all that up. And uh, and it all went straight in, and I and I kind of really really enjoyed it. As I've got older, probably would I read Lord of the Rings again? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I probably will at some point. But kind of the the idea that Lord of the Rings is um, reactionary is tempered a little bit by, or certainly Moorcock's opinion on it, kind of separating my own opinion on it. It's slightly tempered by how reactionary is himself mm. about some of the things in Wizardry and Wild Romance. And he's got this curious habit, as you read in the book, of really intriguing you with a quoted passage and then really witheringly dismissing the <laughs> author in question in the following couple of sentences. And uh, he does that to Stephen Donaldson on uh, on um, 
Lord Fowl's Bane a little bit further along he, when he's talking about world building. And uh, I can't remember the exact language he uses, but he quotes this passage, which is about the, you know, the, the world of um, the dying, dying land. What's it called in the Thomas Covenant books, The Dying Land? I can't remember. Yeah, I can't, I can't yeah. Um, and, and then he says, uh, you know, there's far too much of Tolkien in this for my tests. What <laughs> 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 words to that effect? And, you know, at, at one point he even throws a bit of shade at... Uh, Robert E. Howard in exactly the same way. So he's, he's talking about a 16th century chivalric romance for a while called Amadis of Gaul. And he goes on about Amadis of Gaul for about two or three pages. He's talking about Amadis of Gaul and, and uh, he says, uh, Disguised in black and silver armour, Amadis joins the ranks of Lisuarte and there follows a battle scene between Celadan of Ireland and Lisuarte of Great Britain, which is reminiscent of the battles for which Robert E. Howard is famous. And then there's a big quote from uh, Moncrief's Precy. And then a little bit further down he says, It's scarcely different in any way, save for the element of chivalry, from, say, Howard's Conan the Conqueror, whose only virtue is that its plot is slightly less rambling and it's considerably shorter. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, oh dude. <laughs> don't, don't, don't knock Bob Howard. This is what I'm thinking when I'm 15 years old. <laughs> Well, isn't isn't the ambition of the book? I, reading it again, I I think um, Moorcock is always in the shadow of Aldis and Ballard, isn't he? And I think on the one hand, and uh, this wants to be a uh, polemic in that it wants to remind people who are consuming at the time in the eighties these big fat volume fantasy novels to remind them actually. There is a history to this. This is yeah. um, the, there is more to this to this genre uh, that you that you you're getting soft soap from these uh, big big thick things and it, it means nothing. So I'm going to give you a history mm. of where it comes from and the repertoire that precedes it. However, it's no trillionaire spree. This is it. It's not. Um, it's not a, an incisive essay presenting to you the. But it, it's his particular personal prejudices worked through to come to sometimes a coherent argument about mm. what what's good and what isn't good. So so it's not it's not Aldis. It's not a trillionaire spree. And on the other hand, he's saying that you know the good fantasy, the the the, the stuff that he'll endorse. Is the stuff that, um, like um, ballads, um, in a space somehow creates uh, a world that reflects a mental um, subconscious state, and within that subconscious state, it reveals something about the nature of humanity. Mm. That is the uh, that is the pinnacle for him of uh, good literature, and I can't say that he ever achieved that really and I think some of the examples that he gives if, for example he does a, a huge endorsement, a tiresome endorsement of M. John Harrison's Bericonium mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and you know I, I, I went to it and I just couldn't see what he was seeing in it, I find it mm -hmm. really really difficult, it's only more recently that I thought actually these are these are really interesting these are a really interesting take on fantasy yeah. um, but at the time, back in the 80s, I just couldn't see what he could see in it other than um, he filled out lots of pages with uh, lots of quotes from um, yeah. Vericonium. 
So. Yeah, in the second chapter, exotic landscape. He, he, the, the kind of he actually gets really, really positive for a few pages and really waxes lyrical about the people he does like. And um, so yeah. Fritz Leiber, M. John Harrison, L. Sprague de Camp, which was yeah. a surprise, yeah. a real surprise. Um, Paul Anderson, J.G. Ballard, uh, Terry Pratchett gets uh, gets mm. some good props in there. Robert Allstock, fairly, I think. I'm yes. not going to knock Mythago Wood for a second. Also Lee Brackett. But I, I think probably what really stands out to me when I'm reading this is I, I really do appreciate the the attempt to frame heroic fantasy or, or sword and sorcery in some kind of um, you know almost kind of creating a, a mythos around the development of, of of sword and sorcery. But what what I do kind of struggle with ever so slightly, and what I find mildly irritating in his approach to it is his catty <laughs> his catty <laughs> habit of dismissing people now you know john norman deserves to be dismissed because the, the passage from book nine of the gore saga or whatever that, that he quotes is is pretty reprehensible when you actually read it out and you know um i think oh, there, there is hilariously a, a gorian subculture which kind of now tends to try and believe or live by this enslaved females are more sexually aroused or active by the act of enslaving and brutalising them and they, and they achieve orgasms better and all this nonsense. They're all fucking butchers from Darlington, I should point out, who actually <laughs> live this Gorian subculture. But it's, it's, it's complete and utter nonsense. So, you know, John Norman, fair, fair game, whatever, go for it. But... He's, he's got this. He's got this habit, and and it's not actually a consistent habit, which really I think reveals how this book is to some extent made up of a series of amended essays that he's written previously in different places, and he's kind of brought them all together and amalgamated them in order to make some kind of broader discussion or um, or debate, which is great. But I do find something slightly irritating about his catty habit of being extraordinarily dismissive, and. You know, I'm I'm not a massive, massive Lovecraft fan. You know, I, I kind of I go in waves with Lovecraft. I'll go above and below the line over the over the years, and sometimes I find him readable, and other times I don't find him readable. Um, but he's he's um he, he's talking about um gothic romances and how they influence the weird tales mm-hmm. writers, and he quotes a passage from um, Lovecraft, which I think is a is a really competent and nice evocative passage, and then. A couple of pages later, he's, he's talking about Lovecraft as the uh, what does he say the the inadequate describer of the indescribable. Yes, which feeds into this old kind of narrative, which has been about, around a long time about how Lovecraft was a bad writer, and he also report, re- refers to Lovecraft's awful prose at some point, and it's like Lovecraft, like Robert E. Howard, for all of their faults, and you know, I'm not going to excuse any of Lovecraft's racism or any of those other things because they, they are apparently some of his writing, particularly his poems. But he was a writer writing basically for I don't know two cents a word for um, for tatty magazines, for pulp magazines, and he wrote over a long period of time, and his writing went through a series of developments, just like any other author, Moorcock himself went through this process. He wrote things in the early 60s and short stories which he himself would dismiss as mm-hmm. um, the inadequate writings of a, a teenager. But he doesn't have the same spirit of generosity <laughs> <laughs> with with some other writers. And whilst I think a lot of his arguments are really valid, it just bugs me slightly. But that's criticism, does, isn't it? Does, he, does it put me in a bad light that I quite like the catty nature of it? 
Because <laughs> I think there's a certain irony that he has a go at go of Vidal, isn't he? He has a good go at go of Vidal uh, and uh, his his criticism. But I think he adopts that mode of the uh, catty commentator with the you know the bitchy side eye to. Uh, to, to, to certain people mm. and I quite enjoy that I, 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 I've, I've, I've always enjoyed that I think that's probably my standard mode to be honest mm. <laughs> I've, I've got a I've got a quote that I want to uh, take from the target book of Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster because I do think that this is a, the, the tone that he adopts in here is his standard uh, tone he does a an introduction to the 2013 edition and uh, I think this reflects Moorcock's worldview in somewhat right I didn't like William Hartnell as an actor I didn't like the army game which brought Hartnell to TV fame and I could rarely see him as a doctor without imagining him with a swagger stick under his arm wrapping orders at a bunch of uncomfortable army recruits so when John Pertwee took over next I almost stopped watching for good he seemed a return to the authoritarian mode barking instructions to one and all firmly on the side of the chap in charge. A fitting companion for the brigadier, maybe, but not someone I wanted to spend too much time with. And I hated all that old kit car almost as much as the cloak and frilly shirts. And it's kind of that uh, thing, you know, poor old William Hartnell didn't get a look in because he was in the army game. He didn't like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, that, that's that's quite a... It's really actually quite satisfying to know that Moorcock is in exactly the same position as everybody else where you've got your doctor and you've got your not doctors. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's actually quite a nice thing to learn. I had no idea he'd, uh, he'd done that forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I think that's... Uh, I think uh, Rob um, in, in your previous episode was saying about uh, Tolkien represents that paternal figure that mm. uh, from a different age um, and had a different experiences where Moorcock is a counterculture uh, figure isn't he you know the, mm. he, he is a, a small uh, representative of a, a transgressive culture mm. and I think in order to do that sometimes he has to do the John Lydon thing of inconsistent shouting down of authority mm. um, just for the sake of it which I think is uh, a grand thing that we all aspire to be able to do and I think that's quite quite an appealing position to take but it's kind of interesting I was, I was looking at um, when he he wrote a letter to the Guardian in the 70s about 2000 AD after 2000 AD had launched in support of um, some criticism of 2000 AD and he was uh, he was it was quite brutal but he, in this letter he he kind of expresses his disappointment in IPC in this letter, which is fine because IPC was very establishment and they were, and, and they were all kind of, you know, stiff, starch um, editors and publishers. And whilst he kind of is accusing a lot of other comics of being kind of low-grade knockoffs of the Dandy and the Beano, and he's kind of harking back to the, the better qualities of Eagle, for example, that, that, that kind of... There's a little bit of inconsistency starts to creep in. But what's really interesting is it compares the situation around the launch of 2000 AD to a situation of a, what he describes as a similar project in the 60s. And he used his influence in, in his clout as a National Union of Journalists committee member to speak out against the project vehemently, along with a couple of other people, and, and basically got it shit-canned at, at inception stage. 
And it's like that's that's quite a, a reactionary, dismissive approach to something. And he had this same attitude towards 2000 AD, very dismissive of something. That on reflection, when you think about young artists and creators like Pat Mills and John Wagner, had he paid a little bit more attention to it, perhaps, maybe not, but perhaps he would have seen that they were maybe at the forefront, infiltrating that kind of staid, those staid and moribund halls of, of um, you know, kind of creating things by committee to create something that's actually been subversive and quite long-lasting. But it, but is it not, doesn't it, doesn't it not come back to, in uh, Wizard and World Romance, that um, fundamentally he is a humanist, isn't he? So I think his criticism of uh, some of those, uh, I'm not, I'm not, Sticking up for this uh, argument, but his his criticism is that it, it of two thousand AD was that it was doing that thing just for the sake of it without any sense of hum, humanism. So if you were, it, it it's okay um, to play with the idea of uh, fascism and uh, you know uh, like Lord Horror and, and mm. what have you, but essentially it has to be a humanistic message. And his argument was that in uh, uh, 2000 AD, it was uh, violence for the sake of violence. I, I think that's what he, he, he was arguing. Because that kind of comes up in uh, Wizardry and Wild Romance, doesn't it? He, that, that sense that the authors who uh, he thinks has, uh, it, it, Walter Scott and uh, people, like, it, they have a sense of, even though it's overblown and uh, portentous, mm. there's a sense of humanity at the heart of it. Um, and it, when, you, when you hear him speak, Moorcock always comes back to that fundamental humanist message. And mm. you know, recently uh, reading uh, Quorum, you know, that is a, that is a, a, a theme of um, his writing. Mm. No, that's a fair point. Um, I think maybe I just kind of, I'm being reactionary in my own way by reacting to Moorcock's criticisms of things <laughs> that are close that are close to me. I yes, suppose. close to your heart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, that, this, this is always an issue with literary criticism. And don't get me wrong, as, as uh, I'm never going to diss Michael Moorcock because, as Alan Moore said, he would knock you out with one swipe of his massive paw because he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a big fella. And uh, I'm sure even at the age of 81, he could turn me inside out. But you know it's uh, that's one of the issues with with reading someone who you love as a fictional author and then reading his opinions on things and reading him kind of um, deconstruct in sometimes quite a, a a cruel and dismissive manner well not even deconstruct him just say this is shit <laughs> but but is it not the case that we have a tendency you know this is a problem with uh, morrissey fans isn't it um they you you project upon mm. people that you admire yeah um opinions that they may not have yeah um and just because you admire them and and, and similar as, as i was saying I, I i've been guilty of making an argument about talking on Walcott's behalf that he wasn't he isn't actually making in this book and he, mm. he doesn't you know he doesn't it isn't essential this is not an essential uh, marxist analysis of uh of talking he's not saying that he's just saying that it it's twee it's conservative and on the side of authority mm. and against the individual and individualism. Well, it's it's, it's funny you raise, you, you raise Morrissey because it's certainly the case that as one gets older, it's, it's certainly not unusual for our idols, no matter how progressive we think they might be at the time, 
uh, to end up being to some lesser or greater degree reactionary and a little bit disappointing. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, you know, Phil was a massive Smiths fan, and she's she's bitterly disappointed in Morrissey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like a lot of people are, I think. Yeah. Johnny Marr was always the real talent behind yeah. it. Let's settle on that. Yeah. We, we we thought that all the time, didn't we? Yeah. I can't I can't settle on that because I never liked the Smiths in the first place. <laughs> but it's let's let's just quickly get into actually what is his, his first broadside at Tolkien comes in chapter two and interestingly he uses Fritz Leiber as, as his container to deliver his uh, to deliver his broadside he says uh, occasionally of course Tolkien manages a romantic evocation or two passages which are admired by many contemporary readers who do not otherwise enjoy him but Tolkien's enormous success could easily be in direct relation to the extent to which the elements of romance are absent from his narrative, as Fritz Leiber, probably America's leading living fantasist, wrote in a letter to Lynn Carter. There's no arguing that a vast number of people are tremendously and enduringly enthusiastic about Tolkien's trilogy, yet I do meet quite a few whose reactions are much like my own. We almost always start with, The Ents are great, oh boy yes, and that first part of the quest with the Black Riders in the distance, and Strider a mystery, that's great too. And yes, the first appearance of the Nazgul and the Balrog. At about which point the silence begins and we search our memories and look at each other rather guiltily. Exciting things should spring to mind, but they don't. He's not interested in women. He's not really interested in the villains unless they're just miserable sneaks, bullies and resentful cowards like Gollum. Tolkien, so unlike Edison, does not explore and even seems uninterested in exploring the mentality and consciousness and inner life of his chief villains. And uh, Lieber said that in uh, in 1969. And actually, there's a lot of I think there's a lot of truth in that. It's, it's hard to disagree with that. The villains in Lord of the Rings. I mean, let's face it. It, it is a proposition. Our heroes are from the Shire, which is 99.9% gammon. The mm. Shire is the most gammony thing in any form of fantasy literature. I think of all time, it's a hundred percent worse. Apart from Bilbo and Frodo later on. And his mates, it's 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 all gammon, and probably this is why I'm a little bit afraid to read the Lord of the Rings again now, reading it with a modern eye. I think a lot of the criticisms of Tolkien that have come about in the last 25, 30 years are probably true, and ninety yeah. percent of that you could probably direct at other things as well, like Harry Potter, for example. Yes, yeah, you you, you most certainly can. I, I read uh, Lord of the Rings last year and uh, quite enjoyed it because we did a an episode on Middle Earth role playing. And uh, as part of that, I, I, I reread it. And I have to say that I, I probably got more from it uh, reading it on uh, this occasion. And of course, there's a famous scene that is never, uh, is, uh, it doesn't appear in the film, the, the scouring of the uh, Shire at the end mm-hmm. when they return home. And uh, that is it, almost certainly the best bit in the, uh, mm. the uh, entire three uh, trilogy. But yeah, you can. You're absolutely right. The Shire is the epitome of Middle England mm-hmm. and Middle English uh, sensibilities. And in this age of um, polarization, and you know the fact that Middle England has um, used the inflection of the 2008 financial crisis to override um, decades of liberal humanism. That's why that's why reading uh, reading Lord of the Rings does it raises the hackles in the back of your neck because mm. you know it is it it's reactionary but not it's reactionary in a very specific way very English conservatism um, that you know I I have no uh, truck with. <laughs> so 
interestingly, you've said that you've read Lord of the Rings recently, so key question. Tom Bombadil, are you for him or against him? Well, I, I, I've been traditionally against him, but reading it again, you realise that he is um, something interesting. He is something interesting in that world. He's a demigod. Mm. He, he wears the ring and it doesn't affect him. Mm. Um, and Tolkien's um, biggest crime is that he doesn't explore that and he doesn't have any relevance to the rest of the uh, thousand odd pages that you have mm. to read. You know, he is an interesting character. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it, it's uh, that's me being revisionist of every view I've had for the last uh, 30 <laughs> years. Um, it just got to show that I'm open minded about these things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to take a pause to, to roll my giant D6. Yeah, because okay, I'm going to my first beer. So that's a three. So counting along. So I am now on. The standing jerk of the year, apricot and almond sour. That sounds awful. Yeah, apricot and almond sour. Take a look at my face for the last time. I never knew you. I didn't even know myself anymore. But I'm not even fucking reading that. <laughs> Craft beer nonsense. Uh, it's a 6.5%. Once again, this was a gift from Natasha. So let's see what she's set me up with. I actually don't mind a sour from time to time. But I tend to prefer Lambic's. I do find some of these uh, English sours a little bit, a little bit dry, and they kind of dry you out and desiccate you like a biscuit. So I've got, you know, we, we're talking about um, being right on. I've got a toast, uh, which is here to change, a citrusy, hoppy, planet-saving IPA toast, and apparently, it's made out of surplus bread. Ah! Can you imagine such a concept of surplus bread? Surplus bread. Well, thinking back to one of our earliest shows, I think when Loz and I covered the Dream in City, one of the beers we had was made from upcycled cocoa pops. Ah. Mm. So it seems to be a thing. Don't waste them cocoa pops that you've swept up off the factory floor. <laughs> stick it, stick them in a in with some hops and and brew, brew some tasty ale. So, yeah. Right. So it's a cloudy sour. I must say I've I've rolled quite well so far because when I look along here, I've got. 11.5% Caramel Fudge Stout Jack Daniels edition, so I've Ooh, dodged a bullet there. Oh, that's a... What's this one? Uh, bourbon and Honeycomb Chocolate Stout at 12%. I've definitely dodged a couple of bullets there, so so you have indeed blessed my dice. <laughs> oh, God, that's tart. Tart yet dry, but I'll persevere. Thank you, Tash. So some, some of the books that um, uh, this book draw, drove me towards is um, a Mervyn Peaks Gormenghast. And, oh boy, I, I really struggle with that. But that's, a, that's a, uh, a book that, once you get into the world, you, you're really into it, it really absorbs you. Yeah. And um, it, it's one of those that changes your uh, frame, frames of reference mm -hmm. uh, for fa fantasy. In a similar way, I, I'm a massive fan of um, Jack Vance and uh, his Leoness uh, trilogy does a similar thing it has a, a really evocative way of creating a world and creating characters within a world in an interesting way it also uh, drew me towards a couple of uh, gothic uh, books i read the monk on the back mm. of reading this um and of course uh, melmoth the uh, wanderer yep. which you know you, you can see and not a direct through line but you can see elric in that figure that doomed figure yep. um uh, a doomed gothic figure who's 
um, made a, a, an agreement with the devil and uh, has to wander the land. Um, mm. Yeah, there's definitely definitely influence there. And of course, um, I'd never read The Broken Sword until... Ah, uh, that's a cracker. Cracking book, yeah. Mm. And um, I'm, I pulled it off my uh, library show. I'm going to read it again because... Uh, I remember reading that and thinking it was uh, one of the best uh, fantasy novels I'd read at the time. So, as I say, it, it's, this book has uh, furnished my life with uh, better reading. Yeah, there's interesting in that that Gothic section up front where he talks about um, Melmoth and um, the monk. He also references The Nightland by William Hurt Hodgson. Mm. Now, I only found out. Lovecraft existed through through two avenues. One was um, the cover of the Sphere edition of the House of the Bo- House on the Borderlands by William Hope Hodgson. There was a quote from Lovecraft saying, "A classic of the first water." And I, number one, I didn't have a fucking clue what he meant by the first water, but I kind of understood that this person, H.P. Lovecraft, liked William Hope Hodgson. So that was the first Hope Hodgson book I read, and I'd read Hope Hodgson and Arthur Macon and Clark Ashton Smith before. Uh, Lovecraft. I really kind of read Lovecraft after someone had the Call of Cthulhu game. So I played AD&D, and then the second game I ever played was Call of Cthulhu. So that's how I discovered Lovecraft. But I'm, I'm really fascinated by the fact that Moorcock really, really rates the Nightland. Because if you want to read a book that's hard work, <laughs> that is an absolute perler. It is... Uh, is Herb Hodgson wrote in the early 20th century. He was an absolutely fascinating character. He was... Um, he, I can't remember what terminology he used, but he, like, he was a a a body scientist or something like that. But basically, he was like a, a an advanced bodybuilder in the you know pre World oh, right. War One. He was a merchant seaman. He was the only man ever to tie up um, Harry Houdini, and he couldn't get out of it. And I think he might have done that in Bolton. Ah, so, right. yeah. Check look up William Hope Hodgson and Houdini online, and I'm pretty sure he did that when Houdini appeared in Bolton, because he was he was a, a former sailor and a knot tire, and Houdini was absolutely outraged <laughs> <laughs> and accused him of cheating. And he, he wrote Hope Hodgson wrote a whole series of, of fabulous books. He wrote House on the Borderland, which is an absolute classic of weird fiction. It's absolutely superb, and we will cover it on this podcast at some point because that was a pop's hand me down. He did um, one called The Ghost Pirates, which was excellent. The Boats of the Glen Carrig. Nightshade Press have done some absolutely terrific uh, collections of, of his books and short stories. But The Nightland, Hell's Bells, that is fucking hard work because he's written it in uh, a, like a, a faux arcane language as if, it, as if he's writing it from the perspective of someone in the 17th century. And the use of the language is, is so... Um, I mean, he talks about Lovecraft an awful prose, yet he, he really talks up the Nightland. And I would strongly recommend anybody to check it out and give it a go because I couldn't get through it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a really fascinating idea. Yeah. It's about about a guy from like the 17th century or something who ends up in a far future where the sun's gone out and humanity lives in um, isolated pyramids scattered around the world. And for one reason or another, he has to leave one of these pyramids and make it to another one and go through the Nightland, which is occupied by terrible monsters. And it's, it's, it's a terrific idea, but it's almost impenetrable to read. Or it was certainly was for me. But well worth checking out. So Wizardry and Wild Romance as a source of um, an expanded bibliography to, to track down on a list of things is a really, really great source to, to check things out. It's just from, from time to time, 
he and I'm, I'm gonna have to go and check him out now because he, he talks up El Sprague de Camp, for example. <laughs> and I am actually gonna the only El Sprague de Camp I ever read were his Kern and pastiches, which were yes, yeah, pretty awful. Yeah, yeah. And at one point, he actually he disses de Camp Kernan, which is Kernan of the Isles, and he, he quotes a passage which, frankly, is hilariously bad whilst also explaining why Kernan was such a massive influence on people playing D&D. And it was more likely to be Sprague de Camp struggling Carter Kernan that people wanted to be in a D&D game rather than the quite morose, miserable, you know, um, kind of dour Kernan of, of, of a lot of the Robert E. Howard stories. But then after he's quoted it, he says, uh, he says, but it was probably Lynn Carter. <laughs> <laughs> So it was probably Lynn Carter because Sprague de Camp was far good, a, far too good a writer to write this. So maybe, uh, maybe it was just he was he was not concentrating and didn't edit Lynn Carter properly. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Maybe that was the case. Uh, so we we touched on the the um, first part of his Tolkien bashing. I was quite surprised that he's he didn't really get vitriolic about it until Epic Pooh, which mm. was a standalone essay, wasn't it, at one yeah. point. And I still think uh, it, we have to read that passage. I mean, this is uh, reminiscent of the um, forward that he did for the Target book. It makes me laugh every time I read it. Yeah, you've got to read that this is uh, one of the finest uh, pieces of criticism that has ever been written in the English language. So th- so this is the, this confirms your uh, description of uh, the Shire as uh, Gammon County. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so <laughs> kind he, of he summarises uh, it. Yeah, he's mentioning C.S. Lewis here as well. So he says, I suppose I respond so antipathetically to Lewis and Tolkien because I find this sort of consolatory Christianity as distasteful as any other fundamentally misanthropic doctrine. Oh, yes, he's, 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 he's on form now. Um, one should perhaps feel some sympathy for the nervousness occasionally revealed beneath their thick layers of stuffy self-satisfaction, typical of the second-rate schoolmaster. (laughs) But sympathy is hard to sustain in the teeth of their hidden aggression, which is so often accompanied by deep-rooted hypocrisy. Their theories dignify the mood of a disenchanted and thoroughly discredited section of the repressed English middle class, too afraid, even as it falls, to make any sort of direct complaint. They kicked us out of Rhodesia, you know. <laughs> Least of all to the higher authority of their Anglican god, who has evidently failed them. <laughs> you see, n- now now he's, he's backing this up with a little bit of substance, and it's not just little asides saying crap prose. I'm kind of on board with him now. <laughs> it was best-selling novelists like Warwick Deeping, who, after the First World War, adapted the sentimental myths, particularly the myth of sacrifice, which had made war bearable and helps ensure that we should be able to bear further wars, providing us with the wretched ethic of passive decency and self-sacrifice, by means of which we were able to console ourselves in our moral apathy. Moderation was the rule, and it is moderation which ruins Tolkien's fantasy and causes it to fail as a genuine romance. The little hills and woods of that Surrey of the mind, the Shire, are safe, but the wild landscapes everywhere beyond the Shire are dangerous. Experience of life itself is dangerous. The Lord of the Rings is a pernicious confirmation of the values of a morally bankrupt middle class. Their cowardly home county's habits are primarily responsible for the problems England now faces. 
The Lord of the Rings is much more deep-rooted in its infantilism than a good many of the more obviously juvenile books it influenced. It's Winnie the Pooh posing as an epic. If the Shire is a suburban garden, Sauron and his henchmen are that old bourgeois bugaboo, the mob. Mindless football supporters throwing their beer bottles over the fence. The worst aspects of modern urban society represented as a whole by a fearful, backward yearning class for whom good taste is synonymous with restraint, pastel colours, murmured protest, and civilised behaviour means conventional behaviour in all circumstances. This is not to deny that courageous characters are found in Lord of the Rings, or a willingness to fight evil, but somehow those courageous characters take on the aspect of retired colonels, <laughs> at last driven to write a letter to the Times. And we are not sure, because Tolkien cannot really bring himself to get close to his proles and their satanic leaders, if Sauron and co are quite as evil as we're told. After all, anyone who hates hobbits can't be all bad. <laughs> and that's... It's that that's Moorcock's classic piece of literary criticism that we're <laughs> that, that, that we're all kind of uh, you know we're, we're on one side or the other. But I've got I've got to say I am completely on board with him you know, because <laughs> because yeah that, that the shorthand version of that is the Shire is gammon. <laughs> <laughs> but but also um, it's interesting what he says about how one of Tolkien's failings is is. A squeamishness of demonstrating the evil that Sauron is capable of, because mm. isn't that where uh, you know coming back to what we were saying um, previously? That's part of his um, it, it, his difficulty with some of these things, isn't it? Is that you know you've got to show the uh, transgressive nature of evil. You've mm. got to show the demonstrate that for uh, uh, to subvert good and yeah. normality. To show essential humanity, it is part of who we are. That kind of the subconscious mind, the um, the stuff that um, Ballard uh, explored, mm. um, it, it, and uh, repressed sexuality. You've got to explore all those things because yeah. they are uh, fundamental to who we are as humans. And this is why I can forgive Moorcock's cattiness. In, in some of the earlier pieces, because actually when it comes to Mocock's fiction, yeah, it's not perfect. I don't think he's ever quite achieved perhaps the heights that he wants to see mm. in, 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 in genre fiction, but, and I don't think he claims to. He's quite clear about who he admires, might have some slight disagreements about you know some of the particular names, some of the particular works, but when he has been on a farm and when he has done great things, by God, they are fucking good. And he also has that ability to make sure that when you get the transgressive elements, then it could be the actions of Grand Britain crucifying children and people on the road to Colm, or actually um, his own heroes engage in transgressive behaviour on, on a number of occasions. In some ways, because at the time, perhaps... You know, like, for example, in the final programme, homosexuality was still... I can't remember if it was still criminal when that was published, but it was still certainly frowned upon by society, yet he very openly and without any lasciviousness and an absolute frankness of matter-of-factness, Jerry Cornelius is bisexual and it's it's um, is in bed with Professor Hera on page two or three, and it's it's absolutely out there. And in The Dancers at the End of Time, for example, on page two, I think he shags his mum. Mm. So, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't shy away from any of that stuff, but it always feels 
it's not lascivious. It's not done for shock. It's there's always some kind of method behind it, mm. and that's why I think it, when it, when it's at his best, Moorcock does transcend almost almost any other person working with that form. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I can forgive him having little digs at people he don't like. Yeah, and I think uh, that uh, you know, reading this again is you can sense that worldview running through it. I just don't think he articulates it particularly well because, mm. as you say, he's not as good at criticism as the people who he admires, like Aldis. You know, mm. you know truly, if you read Truly in the Esprit, that is a fantastic encyclopedic understanding of science fiction and the impact mm. uh, that it that it has and i think i i sort of think he aspires to do that with this but mm. he can't help himself <laughs> mm. uh, also i think one of the things it's really really easy to forget with Moorcock is when he wrote a lot of these things he was still only in his 30s i mean this 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 criticism stuff when he was writing his letter to the guardian about 2000 ad he was still only in his mid 30s mm. mid maybe 36 37 you know when he's when he's throwing shade at some of these other people and he's having his opinions, he's um, he's still in his thirties, and you know I'm I'm now approaching fifty, and if I think back to when I was thirty and thirty five and my opinions, well I will happily put my hands up and say ninety percent of them were frankly terribly wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's always a temptation when you're reading something by them is to think of them as monolithic. Yes. You know, and that's what I need to try and divorce myself from when I'm reading this is thinking of Moorcock as this monolithic presence. Yes. But his 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 opinions will have changed over time. I mean, you know, he he did he did have a conversation with Arkwright ninety nine, that's Dave Mosley, isn't it? Mm. Um on Twitter on um the multiverse.org in the late two thousands and he did double down a little bit on his criticism of two thousand AD, but largely kind of uh Use. I think he said that the only good thing to come out of 2000 AD was Alan Moore. Mm. And I think he said something else. He said something along the lines of, um, he said that the 2000 AD creators lifted from multiple authors, yeah. himself included, yeah. and kind of um, bastardised or misused his ideas I, and imagery. I, I've seen a recent interview where he's doubled down his uh, criticism of 2000 AD. Yeah. Yeah. So that... I think I think that's at least consistent. But you're right. I do, I do sometimes wonder though that when it, when he says that Grant Morrison was working at 2080 at the time, yeah. <laughs> so and he, he never seems too far away from having a dig at Grant Morrison, just like Alan Moore isn't. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, you know, um, if you'd have asked, uh, you know, if I'd have recorded uh, an interview um, 30 years ago about Tom Bombadil, my yeah. uh, uh. <laughs> opinions would be very different from what they are in uh, 2021. Yeah, very yeah. true. Well, you know what? On that Moorcock doubling down on 2000 AD bombshell, that might be a good a good place to leave it. However, I'd like to make a suggestion that at some point in the next six months, if you're interested, we've talked about Brian Aldis. Mm. I would quite like to look at um, New Worlds. Oh, that'd be fantastic, yeah. Yeah, so I've got um, the first New Worlds collection edited by Moorcock. But a little bit further down the line, if you want to come back to Derry and Tom's and look at our first dive into uh, Moorcock's work as an editor on New Worlds and some of the talents that he was nurturing, that yeah. might be a, a good use of our time. Yeah, definitely. Again, you know, some of the um, people that he was championing at that time, like Norman Spinrad, Bug Jack mm. Barron, 
th those were the, th those things I was reading in my teens, again mm. on the endorsement of uh, Moorcock. So yeah, it'd be yeah. great to uh, uh, visit new worlds. I've still got the copy of the Iron Dream that mm. Pops gave me by Norman Spinrad, with the crazy cover with Hitler on some yeah. mad futuristic space bike with a, with a giant swastika behind swastika it. behind yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> just, I've got that somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's an absolutely wild cover. Wild cover. It's, it's like one of those ones, there was no way I was going to take it to school, for example. <laughs> <laughs> what, what the fuck would people have thought of that? But yeah, no, that would be absolutely great. So, well, you know what? Thanks, Dirk. For, uh, for coming along and joining me and uh, hopefully we'll bump into each other on the Moonbeam Roads again and talk about new worlds. Brilliant. Thanks, Timbot. Pleasure. Massive thanks to Dirk for coming on the show to talk about his love for Wizardry and Wild Romance. It occurred to me after we'd recorded that we missed a few talking points, most particularly Mike bashing the sword and the sorcerer. Oh well, another time. At some future point we'll revisit some other Mocock criticism too, in particular one of my favourites of his, Starship Stormtroopers. For those of you unfamiliar with Dirk's podcast, check out thegrognardfiles.com and find it on pretty much any podcatcher. The latest two shows are a two-parter looking at the Lovecraftian role-playing game The Call of Cthulhu, and if you search back through the playlist, you'll find the excellent episodes looking at the Stormbringer and Hawkmoon RPGs, which are required listening for Mocock fans. And if you can get hold of the annual Grog Zine, you'll also find a Jerry Cornelius scenario. This show marks our 30th anniversary. Well, sort of. It's our 30th release. So whilst I thank our patrons, I'm also going to plug some of their stuff as a celebration of this excellent community. And I'm going to start with our tearless champions. First up, Tim Cardos. Now, I'm assuming, Tim, you're the Tim Cardos who's part of the steampunk folk band, the PDX Broadsides, and you can find them on Bandcamp, the pdxbroadsides.bandcamp.com. If not, they've got a free plug. Uh, Tim, do let me know if I'm on the money. And also, huge thanks to Sebastian Weetabix. Now, Sebastian left us a review on Apple Podcasts, and actually this is a couple of months old, but I only just spotted it. Sebastian says, Deserves more listeners. A splendidly accessible podcast for fans of the great man and newcomers alike. Funny, informative, and well worth a listen. Thanks, Seb. It's always nice to get a review. And also massive heartfelt thanks for the package of goodies you sent through. Copies of a couple of Mike's early newsletters and fanzines. And six issues of the Time Centre Times, capped off with a Mocox Multiverse Comics promo poster with Walt Simonson artwork and a Manchester mag from the 90s with a Moorcock interview, and a Steve McDonald from Corrie cover story and centre spread. Bonza. I'll be burying my head in those Time Centre Times issues this weekend. Thanks again, it was one of the best and most exciting packages I've ever received. I was absolutely made up. Now, thanks to our chaos engineers. They've been busy avoiding brute of Lashmar's attempts to indoctrinate them into Gorian subculture. And they are Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Ben Fletcher, John Timothy Watt, Mal Pertwee, Nelbert, Robbo, and Jim Kirkland. Now, the latest Dreaming City book newsletter is out, and please pick up Urish's Hard, The Guide to Elric Collectibles. It's very cool, and it's also got one of my favourite book covers of recent years. And Dave Washman. Worlds and Dreamed Of by Sonus is available now on his Bandcamp page, and Usurper of the Universe is coming soon. Don't forget to let us know when it's out, Dave. Fred Keish. Fred's a massive reader, and you can check out what he's been perusing, and his take on it, on his blog, at bernalalpha.blogspot.com. John Lays. 
John's blog is at johnwlays.com. His books of verse, The Darkness of His Dreams and Whispers of a One-Eyed Raven, are available now. Simon Perrins. Simon needs no introduction, of course, because he's behind the show's logo and banners, as well as the design for Volume 1 of the journal. You can find his art on a variety of groovy products at his Etsy store. Just search Etsy and Simon Perrins. And I'll link to that on the Breakfast in the Ruins blog. Tony Milazzo. Tony's page is tonymilazzo.com and there you can find out about his role-playing game, his writing, and his novels Picking Up the Ghost and The Faith Machine are available now. And to our proud, haughty Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Craig Ledley, Loz, Taylor, Stephen Round, Randall Gatlin. Randall, the beer you bought me is still stubbornly waiting for the next show with Loz, and we'll hopefully be recording that in the next few weeks. I can't wait to unveil the abject horror of that beer. Asako So. You can find Asakoso's blog at asakoso.wordpress.com and follow him on Twitter to find details of his gaming life and his annual gaming con in Leamington Spa, the Owl Bear and the Wizard's Staff. Miles Reed Labato. You can find Miles' short stories, most recently Lonely of the Stars, at the Doctor Who Project. Now, the Doctor Who Project is a fiction series kicked off years ago back when Who was in the wilderness and off the air and centres on the continuing adventures of an alternate Doctor and his companions. The stories are published as part of an overall season that concentrates on delivering a collection of short stories that see the Doctor facing new and original situations in time and space. Tom Murphy. Now, Tom's publishing some wonderful, unique and moving stuff over at Colossive Press, including the Croydon Spaceport Fun Pack, Nan, and Things My Dad Saw But Never Bothered Mentioning. For those last two, proceeds go to Age UK and St Christopher's Hospice in London. They're wonderful. Please check them out on Colossive.com. Instead, if you're a lover of Starship art, Ron Cobb and Chris Foss style, check out Ian's pages at biomassart.wordpress.com and biomassart.artstation.com, as well as his Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash biomassart. And finally, our mighty patron demons, Gareth Wilson, the cursed monkey hand, Paul Hillary, the no longer that lapsed gamer, Neil Burton, the low profile Destiny Knight, Hold up twanging his fender somewhere. Norman Beresford, the OG patron, the baker on the rocks, the avoider of Danus. Although, you better have a high dodge skill, Norm. Ed Scott. Ed's working on volume 5 of The Blade of Arizona, his self-published comic. You can bag issues 1 to 4 at theartofjedwardscott.mystrikingly.com It's great. Very mococky and tale of fucked up science and fancy on a dying world. I love it and I love the art style. And Ed, hopefully, will be contributing somehow to the next volume of the journal. Graham Holden, a.k.a. Abkalu of Enmakar on Bandcamp for some hardcore noise and drone electronica. He's also a Duck Pond sailor, and their page is also on Bandcamp, and soon they'll be launching their card game too. Watch out for it. In addition, Graham's working with Nand on some more electronica inspired by the Black Corridor. I got a sneak listener some of the early material, and it's exactly what I'd envisage HAL 9000 to listen to with his morning coffee. It's magnificent. The Joe Monte, and of course we've mentioned before, Joe's Saga Press editions of the Elric Saga will start releasing in September. They look absolutely phenomenal, hard-covered, all-new commissioned art. Can't wait to get my hands on that. Will Jameson. As you'll know, we love Dungeon Cynthia, and Will is delivering. You can find his gear at puddleglum.bandcamp.com. Robert McMillan. Bob Dylan Haiku Mashup Haiku 61 Revisited by Bob is available in online bookstores and you can find more about it on his blog at 
bobdylanhaiku61.blogspot.com Mortman, meanwhile, is etching like a champ. Check out her work on Instagram on the handle at tossacointoyourwitch. I'm hoping some of her work will feature in Volume 2 of the journal, but no pressure, Jim. So massive thanks to you all for your support and comradeship on this journey. And if any of you cats are working on anything that you want to share that I haven't mentioned, please do give me a shout. As you'll have gathered from the last dozen or so shows, music has become a regular feature of the show, and a couple of our muckers have new stuff out on Bandcamp. First up, Imria has dropped a new album, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, and quite thematically for this particular show, Imria quoted Mocock's review in his promo for the release. In a 2003 retrospective review, sci-fi and fantasy author Michael Mocock criticised The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch as thematically incoherent, complaining about Dick's lack of an idiosyncratic structure and style. And Maria says hopefully his album is equally as incoherent and lacking in idiosyncratic structure or style. Well, I've listened to it, and I can recommend it. I think it's fabulous. Finally, you'll have heard the work of Nand on the journal, and playing out some of the more recent episodes. Well, the Nand Soundtracks Bandcamp page is up and active, and six tracks inspired by the journal are available for download now. I'll link the Bandcamp page in the show notes. Do check it out. Our collaboration on the audio version of the journal continues, and I'll soon be in a position to upload revisited, rescored, and remastered versions of the first few chapters as patron exclusives. Right, enough of my yakking for today. Until next time, you can gab with us and follow us on Twitter and Instagram on the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email the show at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The blog is breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, and that has the odd patron exclusive. In the meantime... Take care, stay safe, and I'll see you again soon on the Moonbeam Roads. Mm-hmm.